This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'd like to start this morning's or today's talk with, with two anecdotes uh, that have been an annual part of my life here at San Francisco Zen Center, with the exception of the last couple of years. So the, the first one is about an annual children's party we, we do here. Is, is the sound okay? Yeah? Good. Each year we do an annual Christmas party for the children who live two blocks down Page Street in a, uh, in a, in a shelter. It's for families, and we host them around this time of year. And, and we, there's a Santa Claus, and the children will receive presents, and and and, and that's run by uh, Jeffrey. That's his role. So many years ago, that was my role. And then one year. Um, when, when I was in this role and I was arranging a party, the organization, that's the parent organization for the homeless shelter down the street, there's about 20 families there. They said, well, actually, we have five centers. Could you do a Christmas party for all of them? And I said, okay. And then they called me back and they said, well, you know, some of the children at the shelters have friends that they'd like to bring along too, other children. And, and so what had been a few years before, what had been a party for about six, eight, 10 children grew into a party for 200 children. And, uh, and here's, here's the delightful and amazing uh, tr truth of it all, details of it all. It, so then I needed a place for 200 kids. And then I thought, well, you know, kids can't stand in line for a long time. They're kids. A long time for them is an eternity. So instead of one center, we need 10 centers. And of course, we need gifts for 200 now instead of eight. And, uh, and everywhere I turned and everyone I asked, you know, the magical phrase was, I'm hosting a party for homeless children. And that magical phrase opened doors, opened hearts, created 
you know, generosity uh, created almost as if people were delighted to be generous, to be grateful. In, in San Francisco, there is a, a tradition. The firemen collect toys for children at Christmas. And like one or two nights before we were having the party, they took me to a warehouse. And in the warehouse, there was a mountain of toys. And they said, take whatever you want. And of course, by that point, we'd organized a list. And it, let me tell you, it's quite a thing to find out the age, you know, the, the gender of the child, and, you know, and then find the suitable toy. But we did. And we asked people if they'd volunteer to be Santa. And they just said, of course. What else can I do? No. We asked people to uh, wrap the presents, label them, sort them out into boys and girls of different ages. And they did. We asked a uh, local market for snacks, you know, drinks and other snacks for the children. They came with abundance. So what seemed improbable, and maybe at any other time of the year or for any other cause, it would have been improbable, you know, that in five days you can put together an event in which 200 children are going to receive a wrapped present. Um, and I was reminded of this this year when Jeffrey, who now has that role, was making an announcement and saying, well, we have a list of children, and if you would like to donate a toy, come see me. And before the end of the day, he sent an email out to everyone saying, okay, everything's taken care of. All the children have been assigned someone to buy them a toy. Okay, that's the first story. Uh, second story is, um, so every year at the back of City Hall in San Francisco, on the solstice, about 5.30, 6.30 in the evening, there's a ceremony, an interfaith ceremony Maybe there's like six or eight different faiths represented. And it's bearing witness on the homeless people who've died in San Francisco in, in that year. And usually it's about 160 people. It's remarkably consistent. I don't know why. Um, and usually, maybe about 30 of them, nobody actually knows their name. 
And so we'd call them John Doe and Mary Doe. And so when we'd come to, and then we'd break up in each faith tradition, we'd offer a representation of, of their uh, tradition, their spirituality. And in the Zen tradition, we chant the Metta Sutta, Sutta of Loving Kindness. And then you read out 10 or 20 names and then you pass on to the next person. And we stand there in the candlelight, most times being that time of year, it, it's cold. And, uh, and dark. And we stand there. And each year, it has um, almost a stunning solemnity to it. This is our city. This is what happens on the streets when I go home to my place and get into bed and pull up the blankets and sleep. Other people don't. Other people don't even wake up the next morning. Um, so I offer you both these stories of this time of year. Not in any way to draw conclusions or judgments about the society of San Francisco or the society of the world, you know. More to say uh, how complex and multifaceted our lives are. That um, it's, it seems to me in a strange way, as I was reflecting on this, actually I was reflecting on, on a piece from, there's a chant that we do in the Zen tradition. It's called, in Japanese, it's called Sando Kai. And really it, the literal translation would be Many, one, interbeing. Uh, and how this is the nature of our life. All these things happen, you know? All these beautiful things. I remember so fondly, it's quite a few years ago, that Christmas party. It, it was like, it was magical. It was like the impossible was just the easiest thing to do because there was such generosity in the air, in the hearts of everyone we met. And the solemnity of bearing witness on homeless deaths. You know? How do we, uh, how do we reconcile with that? You know? 
in the piece in the Sandokai that, I, that came to mind, it says, right in light, there is darkness. But don't relate to it separate from the light. And right in darkness, there is light, but don't just see it as light. The interplay of these two ways of being. And thinking about this year, you know, this extraordinary year, not that every year is not extraordinary, it is, but this one seems to have um, presented us on, in this extraordinary global way. Uh, no. Something we'd never heard of came into being and affected every one of our lives. No. COVID virus 19. You know, in, in pastoral care, uh, there are considered to be one of the teachings of pastoral care is that there's five kinds of losses. You know? And in a way, this virus has brought all of them into being, maybe for every single one of us, one way or another. So the first one, the first kind of loss is relatedness, you know? This, you think about it this way where our lives are interwoven with others' lives, our, our social gatherings, our ways of connecting, and how they have been compromised, you know? So we, we've, we've had this loss. Then the second loss is how our roles you know, have been impacted. We will, uh, you know, each of us has certain roles, even as a parent or a child, you know, and now you can't be together. You know? Or you had your role of how you, what you do for a living, you know, whether you were a student or you work in an office. Also, these things are compromised. And then certain ways in which you, certain activities, certain functions that are usually a part of your life also probably have been disrupted. And then the physicality of your life Oh, I would go this time of year, I would go here and I would do this. Well, this year may well be, you can't go there. That there are restrictions to where you can be and how you can be. And then the last one is um, our sense of self. When you, when you start to take apart our roles, 
our activities, what we can do and what we can't do, how we can be in relationship with other. We start to take all that apart. Our sense of self is compromised. Or maybe it's more realistic to say, can be compromised. So that came into our lives. And what stories we could tell each other about how that's been for us. Just the group of people listening now. And how in a way, what an amazing thing that we have, we now have this commonality. So we had the pandemic, we had the resultant economic impact. We had the the limitations on our lifestyle. Many of us, maybe most of us. Um, And then in the background, we have climate change. And then more recently, you know, in the United States, we've had a, um, an election process. That, that has been, maybe it's fair enough to say, odd, you know? But seemingly, from one perspective, if you just do the arithmetic, um, it seems like it was conclusive. If you look at the maneuvering and and the intriguing way, there's all sorts of stories, whether you want to call them stories or conspiracy theories, uh, take your pick. And then in the rhythm of United States, what do we do? We have thanksgiving. We have a celebration of gratitude. Maybe there's a deep wisdom within us that says, as we head into the darkness, let's carry something with us. Let's carry something of the light, you know, maybe in this way, the spiritual light. You know. As we head into these uh, difficulties, let's carry something of the light with us. So we give thanks. And then in this season, you know, whether we relate to it, from a spiritual identity, a Christian, a a Jew, or any other faith tradition. Um, We have a way of acknowledging and celebrating, holding up that which is precious. When I was doing that Christmas party, one of the things that struck me was, it's almost like, 
people were relieved to have the opportunity to be unequivocally kind and generous. It was like it was a relief for them. Ah, here's a simple, unqualified way. Taking care of children, giving them happiness. And this rhythm of our life. And this rhythm of our life, it, whether we're talking about sitting zazen in a formal way, or whether we're talking in very broad strokes, which I've been trying to do about who we are as a society, or even as an individual or within our cultural uh, identity. Uh, the, um, it's a combination of the doing and being. Yeah? All these things have happened in this year. And we did our responses. We, 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 we perceived them a certain way. We thought up a way of relating to that. And we enacted it, you know? Whether it was just staying home and watching more uh, Netflix, you know? Or whether it was, you know, I spent the first five months of the year, not quite by design, in, uh, in a monastery where we were blissfully separate from all the restrictions that were happening outside. We didn't need to socially distance. Um, doing and being. If you think in Zazen, we sit down to be, to be Zazen, to be the body, be the breath, be the thoughts, be the feelings, be the sound. And in the midst of that being, as we are uh, endeavoring to let that invite us into the depth of being, the doing of our being, of what, who and what we are as a person, asserts itself. Yeah? The mind starts to think. The mind conjures up a reality. And if it's allowed to continue in that regard, starts to do. Yeah? Whether we just have a narrative in our head, whether we start to plan, whether we start to emote, whether, whether we start to remember or anticipate. The, the impulse to do asserts itself. So in Zazen, to discover the being in the midst of doing. 
and to let the being illuminate the doing. This is what that sutra I mentioned, the Sandokai, this is in the merging. Can we carry our doing in a way? Can we engage our doing in a way that's informed by our being? When I think of those stories that I mentioned, to me, the common ground of them is, both of them is caring. People were generous because they cared. They offered space, they offered toys, they offered food because they cared. People showed up at the back of City Hall because they cared. Because even though it's unsettling, it's part of what we are. And if we excluded, we're excluding part of ourselves. And, and we interbee singularly and collectively. When we exclude some part of ourselves, that integrating and harmonizing of being is disrupted. And of course, you can look at our history. And this is seemingly is what we've constantly done. We've constantly created us and them. And we've acted on that. So the admonition of the Sando Kai. And I would say the admonition of our own caring is asking us to mediate our doing with our being. If you think of doing and you think of, well, we do something to have a certain outcome. But we do something with a certain outcome from a certain notion of what reality is, from a certain notion of what is important to have happen and what is important to not have happen. You know, as human beings, we will, um, we will infuse what we want to have happen with desire we will infuse what we don't want to have happen with aversion. And, and if it just stays fueled by our desire and our aversion, if it just stays fueled by our rigid thinking, it, it, it goes in a strange way. Then us and them and then us acting in our best interest 
and ensuring they don't are not able to interrupt us, it becomes utterly plausible, you know? Of course, that makes sense. That is what we should do. They are not us. They will not ensure the enactment of our desires and our aversions. And of course, we can do that within ourselves. All by ourselves. We don't need anyone else to uh, prompt. And the Sandukai says, yes, there is a constructed world. That's what it is to be alive. Yes, we, of course, we construct versions of reality. And we can watch ourselves when we vote or an election comes, take sides, have a preference. And when a whole variety of stories and perspectives arise, we can watch ourselves um, believe or disbelieve. I have been fascinated in reading uh, articles that, that analyze uh, conspiracy theories and, and how, how they're believed. And honestly, I, I find it very informative. You know? I can read something and I could think, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. That's so ridiculous, it's funny. And then I keep reading the article and it says, and this percentage of the population uh, totally believes this, goes out into the streets with signposts, you know, holding up placards saying, this is true. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is to say that our impulses in the world of doing they need our being. They need something in us to sort of introduce what we might call the nourishing factors of our interbeing. Yeah. This, this way in which when we give yeah, we may give a material thing or a beneficial action, but actually we give something of ourself. You know, we, we, we give over to interbeing. And usually when we give in that way, we feel enriched. And more interestingly, when we give in that way, something in us, I would say, and this is my experience, is nurtured. You know? And that when we do that together, 
we nurture each other. And I think in a way, we reassure each other. There is goodness in the world. We're capable of it. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, <laughs> that we human beings <laughs> are capable And then is there a way that with all of these challenges, the pandemics, the, the bifurcation of our political system you know, in the United States now, it looks like the very notion of democracy is being called into question. And anyway, that's how it seems to me. Uh, can we have as a touchstone the sensibility of being that touches a shared humanity? Can we remind ourselves, well, even inside myself, there's a variety of beliefs and a variety of agendas and a variety of opinions and behaviors. Why would I expect a uniformity in our society? Or why would I expect even a uniformity within my close friends? How do we infuse our doing with being? And in a way, this is how we discover what we might call right effort in Zazen. And this is how that, yes, there is a purposefulness in Zazen. The purposefulness is be present. No? Don't just swirl around in random thoughts and feelings. In, in enchanted by your own dreamlike consciousness, be present in the here and now. And then in our doing, you know, how do we do in a way that upholds being? Some, sometimes in Zen, I think of it as part of the Taoist influence, like the way. The journey is what's important, not the destination. How things are engaged, not the outcome, is important. And then when we take that and we apply it to our life, we find, oh, you know, when I, when I grow grocery shopping and I decide halfway to the grocery store, I'll walk in the park because the journey is what's important and being is what's important. Um, I'm not going to have anything to eat. <laughs> There'll be no groceries to take home. 
but when I'm at the grocery store, kind of remember not to elbow people out of the way. So I get to the top of the line first, you know, can I, uh, can I be present for the activity? This, this, this blend. This commonality of existence. It goes below, you know, whatever city you live in, whatever country you live in, which goes below whatever your polit political identity is, you know, or however else you create identity for yourself. We all eat. We all drink water. We all sleep. We all want to love. And we all want to be loved. We all want a sense of connection. And I would add that we all want a sense of freedom that this being uh, draws us close to. It's something in us uh, knows. So something in us um, appreciates the wisdom and compassion of being. that when we touch it within ourselves, there is a kind of relief. Ah. Given all the things I'm capable of, how lovely, this is how I'm being in this moment. And at this time of year, you know, I remember my daughter when she was in her righteous later teens, uh, would berate the whole notion of Christmas as, as a kind of commercial ploy. Huh? And now she has two young children of her own and uh, she sees the delight, the imaginative, intrigue they have around it all. And I will give her credit. She's still, as, as often as she can, which is most of the time, she creates the gifts she gives. Uh, attempting to moderate. I think that's part of what we're asked to do. You know? Can you moderate the aspects of our collective society that don't feel so good to you? Not as an expression of your aversion, your disapproval, your, your rejection, but 
in the service of interbeing. That we can think of this time of year as at its core, it has something beautiful. At its core, it really does shed a light on the human condition. At its core, it really does invite us to go beyond uh, self-preoccupation. And then, such is the nature of our human condition, we are inclined to say, but wait a minute, couldn't we sell lots of those and make lots of money or couldn't we whatever? That's the nature of our society. But can we see the goodness in it? And can we act in accord with the goodness? Not not in a kind of, um, what would you say? Um, Not in a naive way. But, but in a way that's not going to easily give up the good because there's something you could validly criticize. And I, I would offer you that notion. That this is um, this is our challenge, you know. In the midst of all this turmoil, maybe it's a kind of hope, you know. a hope of how to enable the whole, to bring forth that which. I'm inclined to use the word virtuous, but maybe that's too dualistic, brings forth a wholesomeness. If you think about it, can we really resolve the difficulties we're having with our climate change if we don't bring it forth at all? If the countries the major countries just keep competing and saying, well, why don't you, you know, cut your production? And we don't. Uh, now, as, as we have the possibility of a vaccine, you know, I, I think many of us are thinking, How lovely, how wonderful. Things will return to normal. Ah. So normal was great before the vaccine, before the virus. We can make it so. We can uh, 
indeed we can let our uh, our wish for what can come back into being we we can carry with that wish uh, a well-being of everyone we can carry with it a new beginning ah. maybe not forget the commonality, the fragility of our collective being. Maybe not forget those kinds of losses that, that impact us all. When the virus is around and when it's not around. Yeah. May we allow that, that rhythm of us, that as we head into the dark, uh, we uphold the light. Probably somewhere hundreds of thousands of years ago, while we were still hunters and gatherers, this heading into the dark of the year, we searched for some way to un lighten up in both senses of the word. It's darkness. I'd like to offer you, in closing, a very short poem by Anna Swer. Here's the poem. There's a light in me. Whether in daytime or in nighttime, I always carry inside a light. In the midst of noise and turmoil, I carry silence. Always, I carry light and silence. Yeah. Maybe in this talk, I've been saying, carry a light, see what you're dealing with, and carry into being. Don't just relate with your heart. Relate with that part of you that cares. You know. It cares enough to buy a toy for a childless, homeless person, a homeless child. It cares enough to feel saddened when they hear a list of names, John Doe, number one. John Doe, number two, of people who died on the street and didn't even have a name. That's how impoverished we left them. Who care? It's a magnificent part of us. It makes our life worthwhile. It supports us. It supports others. It helps us find a good response 
to the challenges we have in front of us. And the Zen chant says, implies, do what you do. Think about it deeply. Add your compassion to your wisdom. And then do what you do. Live your life. It's a precious gift. And Anna swore, says, and I carry with me also a connection to being. It helps me, helps me remember something more than just doing. It seems to me no. When we can connect like this, we have a resilience. Okay, we have these problems, we have these issues in our collective being in this world and in our own lives. You know. And when we meet them in this way, they will um, they'll teach us. We learn something from them. We learn something about both, about doing and being. Okay. Thank you very much.